I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and then walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Laz Rojas. Who is Laz Rojas? Well, Laz Rojas is an actor, an artist, and a cartoonist, and inarguably a self-taught auteur. In the 1990s, Laz was attempting to break into Hollywood. In order to convey his talents, he created a four-hour demo reel that can only be deemed as a sweeping epic, one that featured over 100 characters, women, men, children, and even aliens, all brought to life by none other than Laz himself. Yes, that's correct. He literally played every single character in every scene, fully as committed to his performance as Lady Erica, the dominatrix, as to C-Note, the highly problematic black-faced rapper. However, the nearly six months of effort it took to bring this project to life did not open up a doorway for Laz to fame and fortune. His one-man showcase went almost completely unnoticed until it grew a cult following in the underground tape trading scene of the late 1990s and early 2000s and caused every single person to witness its singular brand of genius to ask one question. Who was Laz Rojas? What was the true intention behind this Lynchian wonder of Herculean DIY effort? Whatever happened to the man who created quite possibly the single most bizarre piece of filmmaking ever made? tell me novels songs poetry i know movies everyone in l.a writes movies i must say captain your security measures are most extensive there are those who disagree with our policy of cooperation with arachna general so we are forced to take precautions you know if i live to be a hundred i'll never understand why you broke up with tommy gordon after going steady for two years that was the worst day of my life. You know that, don't you? You know, traffic's really getting bad these days. It took me 20 minutes to get here today. That's bad. Used to take me 15. Why don't you ride in with Darlene? She's over in your direction. Are you kidding? Ride in with Maybe that I'm one of those who's gonna be a late bloomer. <laughs> Maybe the latest bloomer of all. But I still believe this is what I'm meant to do. And the only thing that'll convince me it isn't is if I die before it happens. The Burden of Dreams. Werner Herzog's 1982 seminal film, Fitzcarraldo, is often referred to as the most logistically complex film ever made. The story centers on a rubber baron who's compelled by a vision to build an opera house deep in the Amazon jungle. In order to gain the funds to do so, he concocts a plan to haul a steamboat over a mountain and use it to transport people and goods to a secluded and rubber tree rich area of the jungle, ostensibly making himself the only conduit to this valuable resource. The film stars longtime Herzog collaborator Klaus Kinski as the titular Fitzcarraldo. The film is an impressive story of the human spirit and the willpower it takes to truly be indomitable in the face of one's own ambition. The scope and gritty reality of the film carry extra weight and gravitas due to the means by which the film is carried out. 
Initially, Herzog, inarguably one of the most important directors to ever work within the medium, had a three-picture deal lined up at a high-profile American studio. So, he went and pitched them. Pitched the idea of creating a film and telling this rubber baron's journey deep into the Amazon jungle. They said, we love it. We'll shoot it on the back lot next August. To which Herzog replied, fuck you. There will be no plastic solutions for this film. We will do this or we won't. And the funny thing is, I can actually. I read this and I was like, this this is the reason for this. You're not trying to draw parallels between Laz Rojas and Werner Herzog. You're just trying to you're trying to manufacture an opportunity to do a Werner Herzog impression. The development execs were befuddled. Werner, one of them leaned in, furrowing his brow. Are you saying you actually want to take a fucking steamboat over a mountain in the Amazon? You want to do this for real? Needless to say, Herzog didn't make the film within the studio system. He produced the film independently. Shooting the film took close to a decade, with multiple people losing appendages and even dying. Halfway through the initial production of the film, it was shut down, because Mick Jagger, who was playing a mentally handicapped supporting character, had to leave for a Rolling Stones tour, and Herzog was forced to literally start over again. He forged documents from the president of Peru stating that he was allowed to film in the jungle. He ostensibly built a roving town of over 300 indigenous workers who helped him day to day, literally moving twin steamboats through the Amazon jungle. The logistics involved in hauling these 230 ton steamboats through the incomprehensibly dense jungle can only be described as nothing short of Herculean. At one point, legend has it, he even threatened to shoot Klaus Kinski at point-blank range while holding a rifle because Kinski was making overtures of leaving the production, becoming sick of living in the Amazon and almost getting eaten by snakes every day. We could literally do a whole episode just on the making of Fitzcarraldo. In fact, two documentaries and a book by Herzog himself have been released chronicling the arduous creative journey. In many ways, the story surrounding this fictional narrative has become so respected and beloved, it's almost inextricable from the viewing experience. It begs the question, does suffering and struggling and overcoming a near incomprehensible level of difficulty perform a chaos magic ritual on the artistic quality of any given artistic work? Is there a mathematical equation that can lead even the most talentless of artists to success? If they struggle enough and shoulder enough pain, are they practically guaranteed to wander sideways into a career-defining work? If enough pressure is applied to an artist, will they transform it into an artistic diamond? Is the theorem that defines all would-be geniuses, time plus pain plus commitment, equals artistic achievement? If you commit to an ideal or a cause staunchly enough, will the universe provide you with the recognition you crave in the deep crevices of your soul? This is undoubtedly something that Lazaro Haas has mulled over repeatedly. This is something that his heart has broken over yearning for, for nearly his entire life. But we'll get to that. Lazaro Haas's childhood and upbringing are not exactly shrouded in secrecy so much as no one seems to be interested. Laz has only done a few public appearances, only a handful of interviews, and has never spoken in depth about his childhood. This timeline is taken from his Facebook page. Laz was born in New York City in 1962. In 1971, he attended St. Hilda's and St. Hugh's High School in New York. In 1980, nine years later, it's listed that he graduated. In 1981, he attended the New York Academy of Theatrical Arts, graduating in 1983. In 1987, 
he moved to Burbank, California at 24 years old. He spent roughly two years attending industry slash acting workshops, honing his skills, and attempting to make connections. In 1989, he worked on an ABC weekend special titled PJ Funny Bunny. He's credited on IMDb as an ink and paint artist. In 2002, he moved to Glendale before moving to Miami in 2004, where he bought a house. In 2011, he moved back to LA, Studio City specifically. And in 2012, he claims his identity was stolen and his bank accounts were drained of all funds. Andrew, how much of that timeline do you believe? It's hard to say. I mean, the, the, I mean, I guess to answer the kind of loaded question, a lot of these things are fairly innocuous. So whether or not they're true or not, I'm sure broad strokes are. And some of these things, it's kind of irrelevant whether they are or aren't because they're just kind of plain details that facilitate a progression of his life. But some of these things, uh, I, I, I have a hard time believing. Um, specifically the idea that he had his identity stolen and all of his money and his life savings was drained because that's just not how banks work. Like a bank would never just allow you to have your entire life savings stolen from you through identity theft. They would have caught it early enough to where not all of your money is taken away or at the very least, there's a lot of protections in place to have your money given back to you if 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 there's a data breach and somebody steals ultimately it's the bank that's being stolen from according to laz he spent the next four months attempting to juggle making ends meet with a variety of credit cards and odd jobs and then he eventually ran aground and he and his mother were put out on the street for the next four years they were homeless they lived a simple yet harrowing routine consisting of living for the first two weeks of every month out of a motel paid for by government assistance checks. And then, when the money would run out, they'd live a transitory life of mall food courts, parking lots, and attempting to sleep in their car. This life was slowly grinding down the edges of the man known as Laz Rojas. His passion and drive to create was supplanted by the base needs of his ailing 78-year-old mother. His artistic drive was logistically impossible to feed because his energy was occupied elsewhere. This is this theme is going to come up again and again, and this is true holistically about Laz Rojas, and we're just going to keep saying it. But this is the worst case scenario, logical extreme of every fear that any creative person has ever had about where their life is going to go. Famously, Larry David always had this joke that I think. He told in his stand up and then he would just say it in interviews and things like that, where he he talked about how, like, you know, in the 80s before he before he got Seinfeld, whenever he was just making it as a stand up in New York City, uh, I think even before he was he got the job as the writer on that Friday's show that was like a supposed to be like a competitor to SNL. He, he talks about how he would be walking around New York City and looking around in that very like Larry David sort of observational self-deprecating way he his joke is that he would be walking around new york city and he'd be looking around finding places where he could live when if he becomes homeless if this all goes south and i end up on the street like that seems like a good place that i could sleep and that seems like a good place that i could hang out 
I think that's, you know, that that joke is is an externalization of the, I mean, I guess the fear of anybody, not just artists, like everyone's scared that their life is going to go into a really bad place and they're going to not be able to support themselves and they're going to end up end up on the streets. But it's most iconically this nightmare slash cautionary tale of being a creative or being an artist or trying to make it in 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 the entertainment industry or or whatever. In a previous life, Lazaro Haas was an artist through and through, but that felt like ages ago. As a younger man, Laz created a comic strip, What TV, about the local news broadcasting industry, featuring characters like Rick Bradford, anchor person, Linda Barnes, other anchor person, Gary Burns on sports and Dr. Bob Gordon on the weather. These comic strips he drew, like they just look like any comic strip from the eighties. During yeah, they're really good. during that big boom of like of 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 Sunday comic strips getting really popular. Yeah, and he also couldn't have been that old either. Like that's the thing that's crazy. At the very at the very oldest, he's like twenty something. Um, but I would venture to say that these strips are made when he's a teenager, if not preteen. For his birthday, though, he got a, a camera. His tenth birthday. He ended up making a bunch of short films, like a lot of filmmakers do. He made one specifically called Martian Invasion, which is a Super 8 movie where he built a whole town, basically, like a prop town, um, and then you know, made little model alien ships and then basically lit the whole thing on fire, which is, you know, it's a fairly typical thing for a lot of would-be filmmakers to do when they were little kids. During the research for this episode, we ended up reaching out to Zach Carlson, the documentarian behind the Vice television show Outsider, who is probably the only living expert on Laz Rojas. Like, what do you what what is your view on his childhood and then early life up until when he moved to L.A.? Well, in the episode, there's a moment where he says, I didn't have time for dating. I never had time for that. And so I essentially I'm 99 percent certain that he's never been intimate with anybody um, physically. And when we were driving, like when the camera wasn't on, he also made a similar comment about friendship where he said he was so focused on his work and his family that it left no time for him to develop outside relationships platonically or otherwise with anyone. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense because I mean, Dave, remember that, remember when we were on that, that other podcast and we were kind of talking about our our influences or our nostalgic like memories or whatever my whole story about how when i was a kid and i didn't have friends so i used rpg maker to like make games and like tell stories through that like i actually specifically thought of that with with uh with Laz Rojas's demo video just the idea that he played 102 characters and he made this whole thing by himself and he couldn't even find one person to hold the camera um and, and it reminded me of that a lot to the degree of like what Laz Rojas did both at that time and all the way all through the years up to today is like as if when I was a kid when I was doing that when I was making those games it was like if I just kept doing that I never made friends and now in 2020 as a 32 year old man i just lived alone in a motel like making games on rpg maker like if i just took it to that degree that's that so the fact that he didn't have any friends is not surprising to me at all because i have i you know i have a i have a small peek into the into that window but you know i 
luckily, I guess, was able to move on from that. Yeah. Well, and then the way he conveys it, it's like, it is what you're describing, but to him, he would present that with a point with, with a certain level of pride where he's just like, no, I didn't have time to be distracted by dating or by friendship because it was so important that I focus on my work. And that sounds like something that you could easily present as like an excuse, except when we went into the storage space and he was showing us like, you know, there was sketches he would do for like an animated series. And there was literally a stack of 800 sketches for this like Star Trek inspired sci-fi show he wanted to do. And it's like, oh no, you actually did spend like three years, you know, designing this cartoon that nobody was working with you on or anything. You know, it just, you had this image in your head. And so, well, there's a, fi- there's a figure in, in the script somewhere, I think, where it's like he wrote six feature-length scripts for the absolutely smashing thing, which I double-took yeah. that. I was like, what, 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 what? Yeah. However, all that, that kind of turned on a dime one day when he saw an ad for a local acting school. He, he basically just begged his mom and dad to let him be you know, in this, in this acting school so he could learn how to be an actor so that he could then star in his own movies and be the, the canvas that tells the story. And um, they enrolled him in it, and he supposedly got the acting bug at that point. Also during this time, he wrote a novel titled The Fantastic Voyage 2, which is a sequel to The Fantastic Voyage. He also made Super 8 animated movies where he would draw every frame by hand and basically build a whole world for himself with these animated films and live action films and acting and kind of made all of this himself. From here, Laz became interested in video games. He programmed many acclaimed mods to existing games, including the beloved Wolf and Doom mod, and hundreds of bots and skins created for Raven's Star Trek Voyager Elite Force game. You just keep going and there's just more and more. Like, you could do a whole episode just on Laz Rojas, the video game mod guy. That's the, yeah. that's the thing that blows my mind the most is the, is the video game mod stuff because I had no idea about that because, you know, he did a lot of mod stuff, but specifically one in particular, he did the Wolf and Doom mod. And that... Popular, right? That's like a widely known mod. It, it it actually there's like a there's an entire genre of video games patterned off of that mod. Like you know how I don't know if you're familiar with the video game world, but there's a lot of like unofficial genres of games that have you know cropped up where where there's like Metroidvanias is a is a really popular type of game right now, and a Metroidvania is basically a game that borrows elements from uh, the gameplay. Uh, mechanics and gameplay loop of uh, the Metroid franchise, but also the Castlevania franchise because they're similar, but they have these key differences. And Metroidvania games are basically video games that kind of borrow from both. Um, And in the same vein, there is a particular type of first-person shooter that borrows gameplay mechanics from Wolfenstein and Doom, which are, once again, very similar types of first-person shooters, but they have some key differences. And it all comes from that mod, which I I never knew that not only did I never I never know that there was like a specific author of the mod, but I certainly didn't know it was him. Right. Well, it was funny. We we learned about that before we went out there, but he was evasive about it. And I got the impression that he wants to talk about his filmmaking because in his mind, this is a stepping stone towards absolutely smashing. Yeah. And it's crazy because the arguably, I mean, you could argue that especially once the episode of outsider came out that he kind of got a little bit more recognized and known for his 
filmmaking stuff and the demo and all that stuff. Um, but certainly before that, arguably, the game modding stuff was the thing that he was most successful at. Oh, I'm sure. And then he didn't, but he didn't want to pursue that, yeah. right? Because again, he got it in his head. I like. I think he did that as a hobby. And then he got it in his head that he was like, okay, okay, enough of this shit. Time for me to make my dream, you know? And then it's like, he probably, I'm sure he could have found some kind of career in games, but like the only work he'd ever had was like a delivery driver for a cookie company and stuff like that. Like he'd never really looked for even like day job stuff to support his artistic endeavors. The thing that I gravitate towards so much about this, especially right here, all of the things that he did on his path to doing this demo video and trying to become a filmmaker, I, I find the, 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 the concept of compartmentalization of creativity and how we choose to express ourselves very interesting. If one of the recurring topics that we kind of hit on a lot is these people who were consumed by this drive to express themselves and to accomplish this thing, a sister to that which I am personally very fascinated by is how we choose to express ourselves in those ways creatively, what that means about us as people and how it reflects on the compartmentalization of creativity. I think classically you think of people in a creative capacity when you have, when you have people who make things, whether, whether they're successful at it or, or not, you think of people as one thing or another, you like, Oh, there's a guy who's a musician and he either he's a he's a guitarist and or even multi instrumentalists th that guy's a musician or that 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 person is is a musician, and then you have people who want to be writers and that person is a writer and that even drills down into like that person likes wants to write novels or that person wants to be a screenwriter and then you know you have like oh this person makes comics this person wants to m make video games and i think i think the way that we're sort of trained and programmed is to think of those things as holistic you are this one thing and i think probably the furthest we get away from that as a society like observing creativity is we think about these crossover artists that's typically a lot of musicians who will like be in movies and try out an acting career you know you, you know and the ones that come to mind are like tupac did some movies you know obviously famously ice cube transitioned over into like doing these family films and you have like justin timberlake who kind of transitioned over into being a movie star for a while before going back to music and all the all these different things you know i've i've never thought of myself as any one particular thing. I've poured a lot of my creativity into making music, into writing, whether it's screenplays for movies that never got made or whatever, or seriously pursuing screenwriting as a real career and selling scripts that actually, you know, would get made or, you know, making sketch comedy, making internet videos, doing podcasts, whatever, writing comics, rather than thinking of it like, oh, like I just, I'm a multi-talented person. I have all these different things that I do or whatever. I've never really thought about it like that. I've always thought about it like, I don't think I, I don't personally feel like I'm any one of those things. Maybe this might be a huge difference between the two of us is like, I, f I feel like you are very specifically one thing. I'm not at all. I don't think of myself as anything. I think of myself as somebody who makes things and I want to tell stories in whatever way that means, even if they're not coherent stories with a beginning, middle and end. If, you know, if you're talking about music or things that are more abstract, the way that I choose to express those things, it varies from time to time. There's there's a, there's a time and a place for every type of thing. 
this is the part that fascinates me the most was that Laz Rojas, the, the pinball machine that he went through getting to this place of hitting on the thing that he wanted to do. He did all these different things. He had his round peg and he was trying to fit it into all these different holes. And he was like, oh, maybe it's maybe it's comic strips. Is it that? Ah, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's, you know, making stop motion animated movies. Is it that? Ah, is it programming video games or doing game mods? Is it that? And he just went around trying to fit his round peg into all these different holes and kind of excelling at all of them. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm just kind of half-heartedly trying all these things. Like he was very good at all these different things until he finally, to him personally, that round peg slid perfectly into place somewhere. And then he locked onto that and he was like, this is it to a fault. He's pursued that for you know the rest of his life and we're going to get into that. But I find that so fascinating and I really love what that how that speaks to the greater idea of creativity that people aren't necessarily always just one thing. They're just trying to express themselves in certain ways. And, you know, sometimes that expression can take many forms. Laz Rojas kind of lives somewhere in the middle for me where he did bounce around and try all these different things. And he didn't necessarily have one specific thing that he did until he hit on something that resonated with him so deeply that he fucking slingshotted to the other end of that spectrum of like, I only do this one specific thing and anything outside of this, fuck that. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's like a doing frequency checks on things. He, you know, he had a bunch of glasses in front of him and he was hitting them, you know, and judging the sound that they all made, you know, the bing, bong, bing, bing. Yeah. And then he, whatever it was about making movies, but not even just making movies, the very specific patina of making a movie where I am in it and I play a bunch of different characters. Mm -hmm. That's his specific obsession. The clumps effect. Uh, I believe it's called the Norbit paradigm. <laughs> oh, you're from the East Coast uh, school of thought. Oh. oh, yes, 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 yes. I, I forgot of the divergent... Um, you know, we, 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 we've had many debates about the Klumps v. Norbit thesis paper written by Charles Wexler Weller that came out in, you know, the mid-2000s titled A Body Repetitive, an Analysis of Norbit versus the Klumps. A, a debate which still rages on and might never find a resolution. I mean, uh, that's really the only and, thing you and, and I And honestly continues on. to drive a wedge between our friendship. That it just really does. Broaden, yeah. It widens every day. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like the blatant disrespect shown against Norbit in these scholarly circles is just, it's quite frankly disappointing. I, I, I can't fight every war on every front. I mean, the primary argument is that the, you know, the, the, the Clumpian school of thought, it's much more wide ranging. It allows for much more diversity in, you know, the, the meta narrative of the discussion, whereas the, you know, the Norbit paradigm, it's, it's just a little too narrow for my tastes. See, the issue there is that you're you're conflating the specificity of the Norbidian approach to narrative. <laughs> okay, I'm like, all right, I'm getting under control. I think Dave is crying. 
I am. So it's a cathartic cry. Look, man, I'm just saying, if you want to eat the bologna of the soul, it's the clumps. If you want to have the the fucking filet mignon of the existential sublimity of the Norbidian approach to existence, I think you might be a better uh, better husband, better father, and um, quite frankly, a better friend. The only thing I have to say to that is, in the universal signal of peace and prosperity, putting two hands together, pulling them apart, and repeating the mantra, Hercules. 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 I'm assuming that's a fucking clumps reference, but I don't even fucking know. (laughs) He rose to prominence within the world of video game modding, and then one day, just disappeared. Why? Because he'd had enough playing with other people's toys. He wanted to finally make the films that were inside of his head. He wanted his own toys. He self-produced a 50-minute VHS film titled Justice. He made 11 copies, sent it to distributors, and then didn't get any response. It was never released online, and it's never been screened in any significant length. The only time it's been shown publicly was in a promotional clip for Vice's episode of Outsider featuring Las Rojas. And the footage is, you know, it's it, basically all the footage in that sequence is just like a guy in a puffer jacket chasing a dude in a windbreaker. And they're kind of running around the desert. One of them's got a rifle. And the, the shot compositions are actually very competent. Like it looks like a well-executed movie shot on VHS. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to learn, we're going to learn that continues to be true even whenever he's shooting all these things where he's playing a hundred different characters and every single scene is him interacting with himself. Even in that situation, for somebody who doesn't know anything about filmmaking necessarily, he he has an intuitive sense for composition and setting up a scene and creating visual vocabulary and, and geography. And, you know, very, very few of his shot compositions have too many imperfections in them. You know, he doesn't especially considering that it's just him playing every character and just setting up a camera and cutting around himself. It's really competently composed. Yeah. This, however, didn't get him noticed. So what did he do next? After moving to LA, he spent five years working, trying to make something happen. He wrote script after script after script, but nothing stuck. He wrote comedies, science fiction, and dramas. He was a wellspring of ideas, but after five years... Nothing had happened for him. He hadn't landed a three-picture deal. He hadn't made another DIY movie. He felt frustrated, alone, and melancholy. But he wasn't going to throw in the towel. He decided to buckle down. He needed to prove to people that his acting and filmmaking ability was on another level. He needed a showcase, something that would serve as a proof of concept for his vision and ability. He came up with the idea of self-taping a demo. Not just any demo, though. He would take on a smattering of scenes from the scripts that he had previously written, and then, well, he would just create them. Whatever it took. He'd write, perform, produce, and act in over 50 scenes, over 100 characters, and four hours worth of runtime. The scenes range from dramatic to humorous. He plays a 50s teenager to a mom. Where does he get the money to bring you so many presents anyway? He works. Where? At that gas station? He probably doesn't even make enough to eat. I bet that's why he comes over all the time. He's not there anymore. He's working on cars over at Al's Body Shop on First Street. A Star Trek-influenced scene from a larger feature titled Temporary Heroes features Laz 
playing a Doctor Strange-esque general and an alien. I assure you, General, everything is under control. Is it, Captain? In four months, you have been unable to track down and apprehend the people responsible for your predecessor's early demise and the escape of two very valuable political prisoners. A mesmerizing clip from a project called New Life features Laz playing not one, not two, but five co-workers in an office. So, uh, when's the wedding, Kenny? This Sunday, and you're all invited. Kenny's getting married? Sure. Didn't he tell you? It's news to me. No, it isn't. I told you a couple of weeks ago. I don't remember it. Some of the other bizarre clips include him playing a German dominatrix named Miss Erica. However, none of that came anywhere near a scene titled New Life 3, where Laz plays two women attempting to seduce each other. I like pretty girls. I think you're one of the prettiest girls I've ever seen. It's a shame you're so rough all the time. But tonight, you're going to be my kind of girl. You, uh... You look different. So do you, baby. So do you. I'm so fascinated by the idea that Lazaro Haas, the, the man, may not have ever known a woman intimately, specifically because the way that he films the female characters is erotic and he uses his own body as the canvas to showcase the eroticism. And that is a bizarre and very, very fascinating double helix of something. I don't, I don't even know, you know, like it's, it's just like, I've never, I'm exploring sexuality in a like mimetically sealed Mobius strip where like I the way I'm interacting with women is through my own body yeah that that that's actually really beautifully put he had one close female friend um I think in college and I got the impression that maybe he would have been interested in pursuing a relationship with her but it was not meant to be I mean he essentially said as much and then at that point he's like well Tried it, didn't work, moving on. And so if there was an inspiration for him outside of fantasy, it was this one like platonic friendship that he had. Well, it's interesting. Nobody, I've, I've never had a conversation of any length at all about Lazaro Ross that did not come around to a discussion of sexuality because he's so traditionally Catholic that like any sort of flexible sexuality is just completely forbidden, right? And so he mentions it in the interview, but he says like, you know, people online, they, they say, I'm gay, I'm not gay. You know, and I think to him, there aren't like levels of transvestitism or, you know, uh, curiosity around sexuality or the presentation of gender. That was, you know? That was a specific thought that I had, you know, watching those things doesn't, you know, for me, I don't sit there and go like, oh, he dressed like a woman. He must be gay. Um, But uh, I definitely think I'm I'm not saying this in a negative way whatsoever, but, um, you know, his 
as Dave said, his exploration of female sexuality through his own body, dressing up as women, that specifically that scene where it's two women seducing each other, uh, and just his general, you know, depiction of, of women in, in that, in anything that he's done. Um, it's very clear to me, at least, that it's not just, oh, I needed female characters in my thing, so I dressed up like a woman. Like, he, there, he finds some kind of outlet in that, I think, for sure. Oh, I get that impression. Well, he made, what, like five or six of these mu music videos where it's just slow motion lingerie. Yeah. You know, like that. Like, that's a lot. That's quite a few. You know, so I think there's no question that he's discovering something that he's uncovering. Mm -hmm. After finishing his principal photography, Laz spent months editing the footage together, laboriously adding soundtracks and overdubs and precise editing all with just the tools that he had on hand, which consisted of two VHS recorders. After completing editing, he produced a number of VHS tapes and mailed them to producers, production companies, and casting agents. He was waiting. He was sure his big break was right around the corner. All of this work was going to pay off, or was it? I feel like just based on the strength alone of, and maybe, maybe people just couldn't recognize it. Maybe it's so kind of subtle that it just does, didn't, doesn't present itself forward when you're watching it. And all you can focus on is the bizarre nature of the fact that he's playing all these different characters and he's dressed as women and all these things. But just off of the technical marvel that it was to pull this off, it was a tragedy that he wasn't given an opportunity just based on that detail alone. Because... Like I said before, he's playing all these different characters and he's crafting scenes with visual geography and composition that makes visual sense and intuitively gives you a sense of the character's locations in the room. And, you know, it's 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 shot um, it, it it's shot coherently where it, it doesn't kind of bump you and make you confused about what's going on. Not only that, but he's also performing as these characters. And not only that, but he is figuring out all these really interesting ways of of conveying these scenes only being the only actor. Like like for instance in the scene where it's the two women seducing each other where he, you know, he he's dressed as these two different women with these very elaborate um costumes that involve hair, outfit and makeup that are very good. Um and, you know, there's a scene where they start to get intimate with each other and one of the characters caresses the other's face and it's him wearing one of the costumes, the wig and the makeup and the outfit. But then he's got one of his hands dressed up with the other characters, fingernail painting and sort of the sleeve of her shirt or whatever, like, you know, and she and he's touching his own face off camera to look like another person's face or when they kiss and it's just him kissing a mirror all really impressive not only not only are they really impressive problem solving for shooting these scenes with one person but they're just impressive in general a lot of it kind of actually reminds me of evil within and, yeah. and the stuff that andrew getty was doing to accomplish all those really intricate visual in-camera effects and then on top of all of that was the shooting and editing project and the fact that he was 
he did this whole thing where he was playing multiple characters, sometimes upwards of five characters in one scene by shooting himself in all these different shots and cutting them all together. And he was doing all of that by editing between two VCRs, which is kind of like, that's the thing that every kid in the 90s and early 2000s did when they first started wanting to make movies. You know, that's that's what I did. That's what all my friends who make movies did. That was the first thing we did was editing between two VCRs. You would just get one VCR out of the living room and take it to the other VCR that was in your bedroom or whatever it was. You figured out like, oh, I can actually like make a movie by recording from, you know, between the two. He did all of this. Not that these look like movies. It doesn't, it's like, this doesn't, this doesn't look like something that you would go into a movie theater and see, but they're well shot and well composed and well edited. And he did all of it by bouncing between two VCRs. And he was even talking about, I forget what it was, but he was talking about it in some interview. Maybe it was the, maybe it was the, the vice, the vice thing the vice. That, that Zach did, but he was talking about how there was some in level and in inaccuracy of when the tape would actually start recording whenever you'd hit record to the point where like, if you tried to like record between two VCRs, you would sometimes get like little milliseconds of blank space in between shots because it's, it was inaccurate in the way that it would start recording from the time that you press the button. It wasn't, it wasn't instantaneous. So he developed this intuitive sense for exactly like when he needed to press the button and how to calculate that inaccuracy and sort of time it in his head of like how delayed he needed to do he needed to press the record button and he had all of this um, muscle memory stuff just imprinted in his mind after a certain point where he was able to just instinctively do it and hit it perfectly every time and you know something in there should have led him to more su more was, success and opportunities in his life. Yeah, even if it was just the fact, like, the more flamboyant and over-the-top aspects of this, you know, where he's playing an alien and he's playing a, a rapper and he's playing a, a, a woman, multiple women, that aside, he's really good in, like, I mean, the blackface conversation and the conversation around his sexuality and exploring that through these female characters is a separate topic just judging his performances in the various roles he's really committing to all of them and he's really acting and he's it's interesting too in in his vocal tonality and intonation where he's not really even doing voices every character speaks with Laz Rojas's voice more or less you know he's not like coquettishly pitching his voice up when he plays a woman or speaking in faux Ebonics and like a weird racist thing when he's playing C-Note, the blackface rapper. He's like genuinely trying to portray these humans. And in some of the cases, it becomes kind of hypnotic where you kind of forget that he's playing. All I mean, you don't really forget, forget, but you know, like in, especially the ones where he's playing four or five, three characters, you don't, you're not really looking at him doing these things at a certain point, you're just kind of, you're in the moment with him because he's such a charismatic person. Even his sad, because a lot of these are, you know, er characters arguing or in moments of conflict with each other. And so a lot of the, the narratives in these demo reel scenes are people sitting around a table talking sternly to one another. And a lot of it's filled with pregnant pauses and you know, emotional glances and this kind of like wounded nature. There's a lot of 
the recurring theme through a lot of the, the, the sequences are that all of these characters are deeply flawed and hurt and they're, they're hurting each other. You know, there's a, there's a common recurring theme of like people repeating mistakes over and over again, which again, factors into the fact that he spent years, months, who the fuck knows how long he spent on principal photography doing the same thing, which I'm sure feels like a mistake when you're in it, you know, where you're just like, I'm doing this fucking same thing again and again and again. He definitely did, because if you look at the bloopers, it's just it's just hours of him being like, what the fuck am I doing? Like literally saying that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think about his handling of race well it's certainly not 2020 ready um but talking to him about it like when he plays you know like the black character you know etc like there's he plays two black characters in the demo um but to him that was not just an attempt to prove his dynamic abilities as a performer but he approached that as inclusivity. And I believe that that's what he thought he was doing. You know, so I think it was both of those. He's like, look, I can play anybody. I can play a black guy or a black woman, you know? Um, But he also felt that it was his duty to represent these different types of characters. And obviously not everybody would approach that the same way, (laughs) but I think it was genuine. Like, you know, and I think that the fact that he's Cuban and outside of ethnicity, he feels very ostracized from general society made him feel that he was being sympathetic to those characters. He's like, I know what it's like. I'm different too. You know, like, I think that that's what was in his mind. But, uh, my cat, sorry if my cat is talking during the episode. The, the cat is just like, blackface, blackface. <laughs> She ran in the room to yell at me during that. Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, in reading interviews with, with him talking about that, both in 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 your your uh, your episode of of Outsider and some other interviews that I read with him and stuff, um, you know, the the thing that he talks about of he specifically says basically what you just said, but he kind of says it in a way of like. You know, if if I hadn't had black characters in it, people would have been like, why are there black characters in it? Um, I don't I don't necessarily think the logic of that is airtight. I don't think anybody would have when you put out a thing, when it's you as a person playing all these different characters, I don't think anybody would have been like, where are the black people Um, or even women? I don't I I think if he made a thing by himself and it was all men, I think I don't think I don't think that would have struck anybody as off if it was if he oh, did yeah. if he did not portray women um but uh i i guess i i understand it conceptually if you know with with what he said and the way that he justifies it or or the way his his explanation for it i can understand conceptually if you are a person that does not fully seem to understand the the historical and cultural significance of blackface and what it means um, right. I can see, I can see you thinking in that way of like, oh, I, you know, I just need to represent these characters because I just want to, I want to have all these different diverse types of people and I don't want it to just be, you know, uh, people like me and that naturally 
extends itself to I'm going to play a black person, a black guy, a black woman. Um, I understand it conceptually. If, if, if you don't fully grasp the significance of what blackface sort of represents. I think, I, I don't know. I mean, this is obviously I'm coming from a place of white male privilege, you know, I'm sure, but like, I'm a huge believer in sincerity of intent. And I feel like somebody can fuck up something unbelievably, but if they meant well and they were truly trying to do something right, I will personally forgive almost anything, you know? And like, and I don't mean like somebody thinking like, oh, if we get rid of minorities, we'll have a better America. Like that is an aggressive negative. But if somebody's just trying to do something genuinely positive and they do it all wrong, I will still look at the positivity in their intent and appreciate it. Mm. And I really, after talking with him, believe that that's what it was, is what you're saying, you know, and what, and how he described it. Like, I think it never entered his mind that that might hurt somebody or might make them feel misrepresented. Like he just thought that they would feel represented, you know? And so I totally understand why people do not like seeing him in blackface, but I also believe that there's a genuine innocence to his intent. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's pretty off-putting, but I, 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 it's pretty off-putting. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty off-putting. But, you know, I mean, I think, ultimately, I think that I agree with the, the emotional core of what you're saying, that he just literally didn't know any better, you know? Yeah, like, I, and, and I wouldn't do it, you know? And I don't think it should be yeah. done. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. But, yeah, but which it's, is lack, it's, it's, lacking, it's, that, it is. lacking that self-awareness, probably not fully grasping, like I said before, like I repeated a couple times, the cultural significance of it. And as right. you said, just genuinely having it a particular intent that was meant to be one way, even if maybe it accomplished the opposite for because of large blind spots that he had. Ultimately, he did not receive any acclaim from any industry people he had sent the tape to. He just got a single response back, which said, you have no talent. You'll never get anywhere. Act two, at the mercy of it all. In 2016, Vice approached Rojas about appearing on a new TV show they were preparing called Outsider, all about outsider auteur filmmakers who refused to relent to the traditional way of telling stories. One of the things that Andrew and I talk about is how there's a lot of like weird kind of class classicism around outsider artists and kind of this weird like, look at these freaks. They're so insane. And like, look, yes, of course, some of that is just, it's just there and inherent and okay. But the thing that I loved so much about your show and the way you guys handled it is that you made a, you made a point to not be punching down. You made a point to depict them as, as humans who have feelings and are complex. And, you know, it would have been really easy to make Lazaro has, and you know, as you said, there's some stuff that we don't know publicly. So maybe you'll enlighten us in to how actually unstable he really is. But you, it could have been very easy to depict him as not 
being all there. And I was just, I just relate to him so much of his dogged quest in the face of 50 years of rejection. I just, I was deeply moved by it. I made a list of the people who uh, give me momentum, like not just inspire me, but people who actually make me pretend that life is worth living. Yeah. And uh, I realized that like everyone on that list with like maybe three exceptions, like died broke in obscurity, like, like all of them, you know, and, but that wasn't, dis- that wasn't discouraging for me. You know, that wasn't a disappointment. I was just like, Oh, you know, Rod Serling did well for himself. And there's a few names in there, people who succeeded or like Ernie Kovacs. But like, I was actually proud that it's like, well, I'm glad someone appreciates these people of, you know, like they didn't die without reason, you know, they didn't live without reason, really. Yeah. How did you, uh, how did, I mean, you talk about this a little bit in the episode, but how did you find the tape originally? How did you come to him? Well, it was, it's funny because I'd seen uh, clips from it at, there's a friend of mine named Adam in New York who had like, before everything is terrible, before TV carnage, there would just be people that would make their own little mixes. Um, and it was, you know, just like there was pieces of it, but it was always the stuff of him playing women, but it wasn't like supposed to be, I didn't get the impression that it was supposed to be hilarious that there was a man in drag or that it was poking fun, you know, at his sexuality or anything, but it was just, I think people being amazed at these scenes of like these women arguing that were played by this guy. And so there was, I remember this videotape where it was the famous shot of the monkey sniffing its finger and falling off the tree. And then the Laz Rojas stuff. And then um, Japanese, the Japanese commercials with American celebrities in them. And I was so fixated. This is in like 2002. There was, I was so fixated on the Laz Rojas stuff, but there was no context for it where we didn't know his name or anything. Yeah, it's just like what? What the fuck is this? What's like, it from? It's on a camcorder. What, what is, yeah, you know, like I'll never figure out what this is. And then it was in like 2000, you know, 10 that Tom, uh, who was a video artist guy that worked with the Cine family, just brought up the Laz Rojas thing. I'm like, I don't know who that is. And then I saw a piece of it in the office when he was editing. And I was like, I do know what that is. And I was so excited because it had been, you know, 10 years since I'd seen it. And I didn't know what it was. And somebody's like, yeah, I think he lives in LA. And I just was like, oh my God. You know, I got so excited. They were expecting to interview Rojas about his films, learn the bizarre backstories as to why he concocted this now infamous One Man Showcase, a.k.a. One Man Movie Studio. However, what they got was so much more. There are times when I wake up and I think I'm like in an alternate universe. It's like I had lived my life for 50 years, and then all of a sudden, everything changed. I thought the time had finally come where I was going to get some kind of career traction. And suddenly a big brick wall suddenly appears in front of you. All of a sudden, out of the blue, bang! Everything just came to a complete stop. Laz told us that his identity was compromised three years back and the family's savings wiped out. He and his mother were unable to recover the funds and they were evicted from their apartment soon after. All the money in my bank account disappeared. I had like 20 grand just vanished. Now, I had had excellent credit for 25 years. All of a sudden, I had no cash at the, at the, at the moment. 
I had to try to juggle, pay part of my rent and part of the credit cards. And once that ran out, I, I fell behind. And after just, it was, yeah, it took only four months. We got evicted. Laz and his mother were trapped in a vicious cycle of homelessness for close to three years. They drifted from location to location, attempting to stave off the crippling anxiety and fear. There's a water fountain over there, so I always go and get some water. And then we have breakfast right here. You eat in the, the car? Hmm? Yeah, in the car. What do you typically have for breakfast? Like, what type of stuff? Uh, here in the car, just bread, some granola bars. When we're at the motel, of course, we have, you know, we can cook there with the microwave, so we have oatmeal and other things. But here, it's very limited. Right now, we're in the parking structure where we come after using the restrooms around 5 a.m. I'll admit that there are times when I really miss my privacy. I mean, no matter how much you may love a mother or a father, to be cooped up with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, especially in a car, is quite a bit to, to you know, to, 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 to get used to. So I basically have had absolutely no privacy. This is where we park, right here. Throughout the outsider profile of Laz, he delivers uplifting and simultaneously soul-crushing missives, like the following. If tomorrow I were to get killed in a car crash, never got a chance to even make one movie, all of that stuff stayed in here and scribbled on sheets of paper and all these boxes. All of this cannot have led up to this premature termination, and then there's nothing after that. I really feel that that's my destiny. And maybe I have to prove myself by sticking with it and never giving up. But just staying with it, eventually it is going to come true. And? All the things that I have not done with my life, all that I've missed out on, if I had to do it over again, I would. When I made this choice to pursue this, it was like, this is my destiny. For some people, it happens early in life. For other people, it happens later in life. Maybe I'm one of those who's going to be a late bloomer. <laughs> Maybe the latest bloomer of all. But I still believe this is what I'm meant to do. And the only thing that will convince me it isn't is if I die before it happens. And then when we had the opportunity to do Outsider, we knew we were only going to get a few episodes. and so. Miami Connection was the big introductory one because that movie is, you know, just has a wider audience. And so it's more marketable. And then David the Rock Nelson was an easy sell because, you know, uh, he's a filmmaker that has a very unique uh, mind and behavior pattern. So it's an easy pitch. But the Laz Rojas one, we really had to push for because people are just like, you know, who is this? What is this? Why is this interesting? And honestly, if it wasn't for the fact that he was homeless, I don't know if they would have allowed us to make the episode. But Vice being Vice, you know. Vice, yeah, they're just like, oh, homeless. Sure. Here's here's $50,000. Yeah, preying on people's tragedy, as Vice loves to do. I think that made it possible for us to actually document him. The quote that stayed with me for weeks after watching his profile is... The only thing that will convince me otherwise is if I die before it happens. That's a soul-rending commitment to an artistic cause. In the face of a life filled with rejection, 
Lazarohas refuses to relent. His willpower is too strong, his determination too great. That's the bittersweet call to arms that makes me overjoyed to be alive. These days, he's dedicated himself to producing a spy film series, absolutely smashing. Think the 60s Avengers with Laz playing both the roles of Pete and Steel. He's written six feature films in the franchise. His Facebook and YouTube profiles have dozens of promo shoots, Fumetti comics, and Photoshop collages of himself as these two characters. A lot of them that he's posted on Facebook say that they were originally shot in 2012, but he's making stuff apparently in the last couple years where he's like turning them into comics and making those weird iMovie, uh, you know, look at this photo of the Nigel and Emma or whatever the main characters are over and over and over again. And I don't quite understand like, what was the point? What what were those intended for? Do you do you know? I mean, it's. I think it's just because he's living between that hotel in Glendale for ten days a month, and then living in the car twenty days, and so there really isn't any opportunity for him to create, you know, the set that he would need to do anything more. So he can only use the stills he has and like the limited amount of material that he's created, and then he's just got to try to translate that into every possible media because he can't do anything else additionally with it. Like, I mean, he doesn't even have costumes or anything right now, like beyond what's, I think what he had in storage was pretty minimal. I don't even know what became of the stuff from 2012. The outsider episode climaxes with Laz's work being shown to an adoring throng of onlookers at the now defunct Cinefamily in 2016. He's heaped with love and attention. It's obvious he doesn't quite know how to handle it which is understandable. I wouldn't either. And that's kind of why I connected so much with Outsider and you know your approach to the show and also specifically the Laz Rojas episode because he was so like emotionally raw. Yeah. Well, he's, I mean, according to him, yeah, this is, and this is in the show to a degree, like he was saying it a lot at the Cinefamily event. Um, but he said uh, that nobody had ever even given him a platform to speak about his work, period. Like not even that he wanted to be adored or that he wanted to be celebrated, but nobody had even like ever had a conversation with him about it. Like people talked about him to each other, but nobody had ever once come up to him and said, hey, that thing you did, that matters to me. Like that, you know, which is kind of unthinkable for somebody who's spent that long, you know, trying to hone their craft what uh what was it like after the episode came out and seeing it seeing him em- embraced like i i mean i'm not gonna man- lie i watched that shit and i was like weeping at one part where where he's talking about like if i had to do it again i would i just i related to that on like a bone marrow level oh yeah he i mean he cried in that part and it was interesting because we, we keep talking about his you know, consistent composure that he has. And that was the only moment where it felt like he wasn't three seconds ahead preparing the next emotional or verbal reaction, you know, because he's such a professional in that way. But that, even when he was talking about his suicidal impulses in front of the audience at the theater, he was completely, you know, like, you know, he was presenting. He was in character as Laz Rojas. Right. And in that moment where I said, would you do it again? And he started crying was the only part where he broke. And he didn't have control of what he was presenting. The documentary ends on a supposedly upbeat note, 
with Zach Carlson saying how much everyone loves and respects Laz. But the final note is possibly the most depressing shot of the whole affair. As Laz is dropped off back at the motel, it's obvious he's going to be returning to his old life of struggle and want. He gives a final wave and a thumbs up to the documentarians in the van, his face attempting to not noticeably sag from the sadness. That was just so soul-wrenchingly sad. Yeah, it was. And we wanted, you know, we at first we're going to come into the hotel room with him and have him tell his mother about how the screening went. And then it was actually the camera guy, who's Mike Lopez, who's an incredible, like an incredible cinematographer, like just run and gun. He did all the audio and video for all four episodes. Like amazing. And he said, we're in the van. And he said, wait, let's just get him walking into the room. Like, let, let's just let it, that happen. And then the idea was, you know, we could then potentially knock on the door and come in and do a little follow-up interview thing with him or whatever. But Mike got that moment and he saw what you're describing. And he's like, this is the final moment of the episode. And he wasn't backseat directing or producing. He just was right. You know, it's like, no, no, this is where it ends. You know, and, and it was because of the emotion that Laz had, you know, in his face. And in that moment, we tried so hard to get his, to get him to let his mother come to the show too. And he would not allow it. And I think it might've been that fear of failure that you guys were talking about earlier. Where I think he was thinking, what if no one comes? You know, what if I'm embarrassed? That adds such an interesting wrinkle to it though, because in the, in the episode when he's like, oh, I wish my mom could have seen this. It's implied that it's like, oh, she couldn't come because she wasn't physically well or able. And the fact that he didn't want her there initially or, or forbade it or whatever, or maybe, maybe that was the excuse and she was physically not able to do it. Right. It's just so sad. But if, if they're living in a car 20 days a month and they're walking around malls to use the restroom, we could have pulled up in front of the theater, gotten her into a seat 20 feet away. It would have been fine. Yeah. And I, so I, that was difficult. But and then in a way, in hindsight, looking at the episode, it, it kind of, it really is his journey and his story. And I think it does work that he goes back to mom after he's interacted with all of these people, all these strangers who appreciate him for the first time. And he goes back home to mom and the bologna sandwich in the microwave. And, you know, like that's just what he, what he's returning to as his real life, as you said. And that's the last, the greater public sees of Laz Rojas. Complete original, true individual, possibly to a fault. I feel like that, that moment, that culmination of that whole episode, or maybe just specifically the, the screening that happened, culminating in that scene that ends the thing, is this really pitch perfect microcosm of the the duality or the dichotomy of the entertainment business or just creative art artists in general. Laz Rojas's situation is the logical extreme of it, of going from being at this huge event in your honor where all where hundreds of people are applauding you and hanging on your every word and telling you how much they they admire you and you know crowding around you and wanting your autograph and getting things signed by you and then after that all ends and the you know the popcorn is swept away going back to homelessness um it's that's actually that's obviously the logical extreme of that 
but it's it's a it's a really interesting microcosm for just how this industry is in general. I think a lot of people have that thought or that perception that, you know, when when you live in Los Angeles and you're an actor or if you've been in movies, you are just this rich person, a celebrity, and that your whole life is this like this poster dream of of success. And I think I think just so many people have no idea that that is not the reality of the situation at all. There is like a top 1% of people working in the film industry that are mega rich and highly successful. You, you know, your Tom Cruises and your Chris Pratt's and your mega um your your mega successful directors like the fucking harbinger of mediocrity Steven Spielberg or uh, <laughs> or any of these things. These people are impossibly rich. And then there's like a middle tier where you're like pretty successful and you're able to sort of make a good living doing this thing that you do. And then there's like the other 80% of people working in the entertainment industry are just like broke and like struggling to make ends meet and desperate for work. And like, even if they've like been in a movie, even if you've seen them in a movie or a TV show behind the scenes, they're just like driving Uber because they can't afford to pay rent off of the money that they made from this one acting role or this small recurring role. And I know so many people like that. I know people who are series regulars on TV shows where they're in like every episode, but they still drive Uber to be able to pay their rent. And I think that is like a thing that most people in the world do not understand. They don't understand the grim reality of trying to be in the entertainment industry. And they don't realize that like half of what people think about it is fake. And if you peer behind the curtain, I can't. What are you? What are you cueing me? Are you going to say it? Are you going to say? Are you going to say Yo. the word? <laughs> it's all. It's kayfabe. It's it's the it's it's the self manufactured kayfabe where Hollywood wants you to think of Hollywood as this land of milk and honey where you can come here and. If you're one of the lucky ones, you make your dreams come true. What they don't tell you is that Hollywood is, and, and this is pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, Hollywood is this burnt out husk that sucks your soul out and like spits you out as this broken human being that's like codependent on the way that this city baits and switches the core dreams that you have, that you've had since you were a child, and it gives you little tastes of it here and there, and it just chews you up and spits you out over and over again like that. And there are very few people that push through. And I'm, and I'm not saying like all these other people are just failures. A lot of these people are making a go of it in their own way, either being successful or powering through, making moves, uh, creating good art or creating good things. And people are actually seeing them and actually liking them and actually consuming them. But they're not making all this fucking money from it. They're struggling to pay their rent every month so they can stay here and keep doing it. And I think that is something that nobody has anything, any idea about. Even somebody like me, I, I, I think to the degree that I already understood that just from being a person that is interested in the topic and has looked into it further than your average person, even somebody like me moving here, my mind was kind of blown learning the grim reality of it. I think my my first introduction to sort of learning that reality 
was having lived here for less than a year, working at companies, getting into a management position, overseeing a team of creative writers at a media company, hiring for, for writer positions and conducting interviews and bringing in applicants, bringing in writers that I am familiar with, that I am a fan of, who are applying to work a $15 an hour writing job at a shitty little media company. And I, that that happened for me very early on in moving to LA. And it was just like, it was this, it was this, it was this baptism of fire of just like, fuck, like none of this is real. Like this person who has created things that I really like. And, and as far as I know, are these significant pieces of cultural real estate, they're desperate enough to work some entry level $15 an hour job. That moment at the end of that Vice um, mini doc where he goes from the screening back to his apartment and that look on his face as he shuts the door, it just speaks all of that in a moment. However, for those in the know, those sacred few film fans that are compelled to seek out and dig and find the gems shrouded in obscurity, this is where things take another turn. Created on March 18th, 2016, Sarah Johnson started a GoFundMe page for Laz and his mother. The page reads, Tireless filmmaker Laz Rojas and his 78-year-old mother have spent the past three years homeless. Through it all, they've maintained hope and nobility and now have a steady income. If you were to meet them, you'd never guess their situation. But as they were nearing what we were hoping was a housing resolution, Laz's mother fell and broke her hip, making their struggle much more dire. She's currently in the hospital awaiting surgery. He's at her side during the day and back on the streets at night. Laz and his mom aren't looking for handouts or temporary fixes. In fact, this GoFundMe effort isn't their idea. What they do need is a very modest amount to get them into a rental so she doesn't have to do her recuperation while sleeping in a car. Once the deposit and initial rent is paid, they can cover the rest of their expenses indefinitely. Naturally, three years of homelessness hasn't been easy on their rental or credit history. So aside from donations, we'd also love to hear of any potential guest houses or apartments that wouldn't necessarily require a formal credit check. Most of all, they just need to feel human again. So anything that we can all do at any level will genuinely make a difference. Immediate funds will get Laz into a motel room near the hospital so he can at least not be on the streets while she's in surgery today, Friday the 18th, and while we find a place that will accept their history. Sincere thanks on behalf of the Rojas family. Thanks in part to the awareness that the Vice Doc raised, the page has $16,292 attributed to it. Ultimately, he and his mother were able to find semi-permanent housing. Behind the scenes, things were looking up for Laz as well. What exactly was happening? Well, he didn't quite say during this time period. He would log onto Facebook and he just seemed happy, fueled by a new creative drive. He posted loads of absolutely smashing character portraits and comics over the next few months. Then, as those months turned into years, things started to take a downturn. You know, Vice doesn't pay anything, but like I put as much money as I made making that episode into the GoFundMe. Like all of it, because I thought we're all going to collectively save Laz Rojas and his mom. Like we're going to make this change. And that's why it was so crushing when that support just kind of funneled into oblivion. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it is, you know, we have our theories and stuff, but it's like nobody knows how or why they stayed on the street. What was also interesting is that Laz has a brother who lives in Florida who is willing to take mom in. And him. He has but, a brother. Uh, he has a brother in Florida? Yes. Who says, you guys can come live here. But 
Laz is like, well, I'm in, I've got to chase my dream. I'm in Hollywood. I, I need to be here in the, where the movie industry is. I would rather make my 80-something-year-old mother live in a car with me so I can chase my dream in Hollywood than go live in a house with our brother in Florida. Well, he also, like, on his Facebook and in, in his Facebook kind of screeds, he's referen- he references multiple times that he used to own a home in Miami. Really? Yes, which doesn't... No, he never left L.A. after he moved to L.A., not officially. I mean, I don't know. That's just what he wrote. What you're saying, if, if he does have a brother that lives in Florida, that to me is, I and my mom went to stay with my brother to visit for a while, and then we came back to L.A., and I'm going to tell everybody that I used to own a home, which is actually my brother's home in Florida, right. or something along those lines. Like He's almost kind of like, put together this elaborate internal sense of kayfabe or something where he's like, these are the data points I can use to build up this story to make it seem plausible or something like that. I don't know. I mean, there, it would not surprise me if he had to structure something in order to manufacture a reality that he was more comfortable with. Like, cause he seems like a person who really needs the, you know, he really needs to make life meet the fiction that he's written. And that's not an indictment of him. I mean, that's just what he needs, you know? I can't recall if we mentioned, but he's never been apart from his mom. And I'm sure you noticed in the episode that they, the room that they use is a single bed. You know, and so yeah. like their, their link and their, his need for that specific security is so intense that I think a lot of his life is creating a fortress from reality. Yeah, because you even know? even if he didn't want to move to LA or uh, Miami and, and give up on the dream or whatever, why can't his mom go? Yeah, it's because you know she's part of the story. Yeah. When Laz did return to Facebook posting in a meaningful way, things had changed. Things were different. His posts were filled with venom and anger. Something was going on behind the scenes. Something wrong. When people came to him um, after the Vice episode, like there was this guy I knew who's like, hey, you know, I'm, I do, I'm casting for commercials. I'll put Laz Rojas in commercials right now, like a Pampers commercial or whatever, you know, and pay him. And you get paid a lot of money for commercials. Every time they play, you get paid again. And Laz turned it down because he's like, no, I'm only going to make absolutely smashing. And it's like, you're living in your car. This is a job, an acting job. You can have it. And he's just like, no, only this. And it was it. Like, no, and nobody could even hire him. Like, four people tried to hire him that I know of. What, what degree of that do you feel? I, 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 I believe that, for the most part, the idea that he's just so dedicated to that vision that he's completely uncompromising in accepting any 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 distractions whatsoever from it but what what degree of that do you feel is maybe like in a way self-sabotaging he just wants to live in this compartmentalized narrative why wouldn't you like that's not going to distract you from doing this like you go and shoot a commercial it takes like a day and then you're done with it and then you go back to doing whatever you're doing like i don't feel like that would really distract you too much or throw you off from achieving this goal or whatever oh yeah and it, it's fear of failure, you know, right? It's like all of these types of things are rooted in fear. 
You know, there's no reason, there's no other reason why he wouldn't do it. And there was a point when he turned down this guy, this friend of mine is named Theo and who was the, doing the commercial. And I contacted Laz and I was like, you, you know, there's no reason to say no to this. And I said, you could put this money towards making absolutely smashing, right? Like you're going to get paid whatever, 10 grand. And he said, absolutely smashing is a $30 million movie. If they want to pay me 30 million to make a commercial, I'll do it. And I was like, that's the only version of this movie that can exist. It needs to be a major studio make, giving you 30 million to this movie. And he's like, yes, it's that or nothing. And I was just like, you know, what do you say? Like, how do you tell somebody like, well, you're fucked. Like, you know, you'll, that dream will not come true. I mean, I don't, no one wants to say that. But, that. but there's only one path. And if that path can't happen, there is none. I can't even comprehend. I, I am so depressed. Yeah. It's the logical extreme of that, of that viewpoint. It's like the, 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 un, the unrelenting dedication to a singular goal. It's the logical extreme of it to the, that gets pushed to the point where it becomes highly impractical and counterintuitive to achieving the goal. Yeah. And, you know, and, and every movie and every adult when we're kids says, if you believe in something and you work hard at it, like it'll happen, you can make it happen. And so I think we're not supposed to believe that literally. I mean, we're supposed to work for our dreams, but also have the flexibility to make them, you know, to make them happen with, in whatever way we can, like by any means necessary, instead of by one specific set of predetermined means that you've envisioned when you were 12 years old. I mean, and you, and you, you basically lobbied for him to take the job, oh, right? Yeah. You were just like, what? Yeah. I mean, I contacted people I knew who did production work in LA saying, hey, you should use this guy. And then he hosed me with my friends. Cause I was like, that guy's an asshole. He didn't call me back or whatever, you know, like, and I was just like, oh. And then he would contact, he contacted me three weeks after he turned on that commercial and asked me to have some groceries delivered to his hotel room. Like pay for groceries. Which I did. I can't. Uh, I. It just doesn't make sense to me. Like that. That doesn't even feel like a standard. You know, a, a cross to bear and an and an artistic ideal to live up to. That feels like something else. That feels like. I I don't even know. It it, it feels like you know like Andrew's saying like fear of or like you're saying you know fear of success fear of failure, but it. it it just feels like there's a missing puzzle piece in all of this. Like it, it's just like there's something not quite lining yeah. up. No, I agree. I mean, and that's the thing is, I think that's a consistent theme with him is, you know, like there, there's something else that is unspoken. There's a reason why this happens or why this can't happen. And I think it's all that there is a single unattainable version of reality and he's just going to focus on that as maybe possibly a safety mechanism, but outwardly, just like this is my dream, and I cannot deter from the path to my dream, or else it'll ensure that it never comes true, which is arguable. I feel like you take a winding path to your dream to make it possible for it to come true. Yeah. I mean, even just the incremental success 
or iterative success of like you do one commercial. You don't want to be in it, but you do one commercial because it'll get you groceries. And then you do another commercial, and then that maybe leads to a bit part on a sitcom, and then that leads to uh, you know, a uh, a recurring role on a drama, and then all of a sudden now you're a little bit more of a known commodity, not just this freak outsider. Because the craziest thing about him, which you're obviously aware, is that he's actually a good performer. Yeah, like it's really, really weird. I mean, Qu- Quentin Tarantino played a fucking Elvis impersonator on an episode of Golden Girls, and now he gets to make like two hundred million dollar. Sergio Leone fan films like it, it, the, the idea that you should not make these detours because they will throw you off from achieving a goal or this idea that like, you can't compromise whatsoever. It's just like I said before, it's just it's counterintuitive. Like he's actively preventing himself from making any chess moves forward by yeah. refusing to do something like do a commercial or whatever when that would not that would not fuck with his shit at all. It would it would it would just it just wouldn't. No, I know, and, and and he maintains that it's a bastardized, bastardization of his, you know, of his work or of his life or of his abilities or his whatever. Which leads us to quite possibly the most ominous thing that Laz has ever posted on social media. On July tenth, twenty twenty, at twelve fifty three, Lazaro Haas wrote on his Facebook page: "If I don't post here on Facebook after September, if you don't hear from me ever again, I want all of you to know it will be because of Eddie Moretti and Unbranded Pictures LLC." will have forced me and my mother back on the streets and signed our death warrants by refusing to pay me one cent of the thousands of dollars they have owed me for over a year. This is a deliberate and calculated effort to achieve our destruction. There can be absolutely no doubt whatsoever based on their behavior, and as such it is pure evil. It simply cannot be described in any other way. In the past, I have kept most of the details of this situation private but I have reached the point where I am compelled to publicly reveal as much as possible and really don't see how doing so could possibly make matters any worse. So I am disclosing all of my email communications with these people since June of last year. For anyone interested, at the link below you can download a zip archive containing all of the emails, each in PDF format and in chronological order. You'll see that most of the emails are from me to them, since they replied only a scant few times. And even when they did, it was to briefly promise to contact me later on and then never bother to do so. And at the bottom of this post, there was a zip file with a complete catalog of every email he had sent or received from Vice Media, Eddie Moretti, and a lawyer named Stu Goldstein. The labyrinth contained within is one filled with a man railing against a system, lost within a maze, quite possibly of his own making. Thanks for listening to this episode. You should definitely go like the Facebook page for the Deep Cuts pod because we do lots of cool video content on there that you'll be sure to like. Also, please join our Facebook group. That's Deep Cuts Podcast on Facebook and the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Also follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. Act three. If I die before it happens. The first email that Laz includes in the dossier of film industry correspondence is from May 30th, 2019. A woman named Sarah Bloom, an employee of Unbranded Pictures, wrote, Dear Lazaro, references made to the Life Story Rights Agreement, the life option, between you and Vice Media LLC, Vice, dated June 3rd, 2016, as assigned by Vice to Unbranded Pictures LLC. 
unbranded. All capitalized terms not otherwise defined herein shall have the meaning attributed to them in the life option. The present letter is to notify you of our intent to extend the option period pursuant to Section 2B of the life option for an additional 36-month period. All other terms of the life option shall remain in full force and effect between you and the undersigned. Yours truly, Unbranded Pictures, LLC, per Eddie Moretti. Suffice it to say, Vice and Unbranded were moved by Laz's story. They optioned his life rights after his appearance on Outsider with the intention of making it into a feature film. They optioned his life rights after his appearance on Outsider with the intention of making it into a feature film. And now, here they were, offering to extend the option for an additional three years. Money that Laz obviously could use to help his ailing mother. But the money never came, which leads us to the next email that Laz sent on July 3rd, 2019. Dear Samantha, according to Section 2B of the Life Option, payment of $10,000 is to be made to me within 15 business days after the date of service of the extension notice. Such service to be made on or before the expiration date of the original option. However, as of today's date, 22 business days after expiration of the original option and 24 days after service of the notice, this payment has not yet been made to my bank account. Best regards, Laz Rojas. He sent another email on August. Oh boy. I had to make the email bigger. Couldn't see Yeah, it. sure you did. <laughs> I don't uh, even know what you're implying by that. Of course you wouldn't, you clumpian fool. <laughs> he sent another email on August 1st, stating that the money had still not been paid, and yet still no answer. He waited longer and then sent this email on September 2nd around midnight. Hi, Eddie. On June 5th, I received a notice dated May 30th of unbranded pictures intention to extend the option for Untitled Laz Rojas Project for an additional three-year period. According to Section 2B of the contract I signed with Vice, payment of $10,000 is to be made to me within 15 business days after the date of service of the extension notice. However, as of this date, three months later, this payment has not yet been made, and these funds are now of extreme urgency for both my mother and me. The Social Security Administration has just reduced my mother's monthly check by $407, a reduction of one-third the amount it used to be. We don't even know why this has been done, but as consequence of this reduction, we won't be able to continue paying this motel where we've been living for the past three and a half years for more than another three to four months. This reduction in monthly income makes it impossible to continue paying the motel, paying for the storage facility where all our belongings have been locked away since January of 2013, and paying for food. Our monthly expenses have averaged $2,300 ever since we have been here. A small amount compared to what our expenses used to be before our lives were disrupted nearly seven years ago, but now we won't be able to afford even that. By the end of the year, we will be forced back out into the street. In her condition, my mother cannot survive five minutes back on the street in my car. I haven't even driven my car since last October because I cannot leave her alone for more than half an hour, and I've been ordering our groceries online and having them delivered to the motel. Not only can I not allow her to get up from bed and go to the bathroom by herself lest she fall and break her hip again as she did last year, she can hardly get up at all without my help. Even if I were inclined to put her in a nursing home, her monthly income will no longer even cover that now. So I'm not exaggerating when I say that the payment of for the extended option has basically become a matter of life and death now. The difference between being able to continue living here under limited conditions but relative to stability, and having our lives disrupted once again and in a manner which at this point we will not survive. Laz Rojas. Around 8am the next day, Laz received this email. 
Hi lads, I'm sorry to hear you were in such a state. Let me get back to you this week with a response. E. Obviously for Eddie Moretti. That response, according to Laz, never came. Laz sent a very concerned follow-up email on October 22nd, to which Eddie Moretti sent a reply later that day comprised of only the words, Let's speak tomorrow. One would assume they talked the next day, because the next email in the files leaked by Laz is dated May 6th, 2020. And it reads, I cannot for the life of me understand why Vice is more than 10 months delinquent and so willfully violating the terms of our contract, as those terms are very specific and leave no room for interpretation. If I were to not pay my phone bill for 10 months, my service would be suspended and I would be forced to pay not only what I owed, but the late charges that had accrued as well. If I were to rent a car and keep it for 10 months without paying, the car would be taken from me and I'd be arrested. And yet Vice has held the exclusive rights to my life story for the past 10 months without compensating me as a single penny whatsoever for it. My mother is 82 and practically an invalid. She can barely do anything without my help and I must tend to her 24-7. I related this in my previous communications and explained the importance of receiving the money that is owed me. That money will supplement our monthly income enough to keep us at the motel where we currently reside for another two years. Perhaps a bit more. Without it, we will be back on the street this summer, during a pandemic and in a car that doesn't even run right now. My mother will not survive on the street the way we did back in 2013 to 2016, not for a single solitary minute. So I consider this refusal to pay me not merely unethical, but as tantamount to attempted murder. If I am not paid the extended option fee by the end of this month, I have no choice but to bring legal action and sue Vice for breach of contract, theft of the granted rights to my life story, acting in bad faith, including holding those granted rights hostage without payment with no apparent intent to ever exercise the option and actually make the picture, emotional distress, and any other relevant claim I can make. I have waited long enough and I cannot wait any longer. Laz Rojas. Laz waited a few days with seemingly no response. Then on May 11th, 2020, he emailed a missive titled Breach of Contract Notice, Confidential, for settlement purposes only. It outlines the information that has been established previously and states that Unbranded is in supposed dereliction of the contract. Laz sends it to Samantha Bloom, Eddie Moretti, Vincent Landay, Erica Allen, Katie Drummond, and Derek Mead. The only initial response he gets is an auto-reply from Erica Allen's email address, directing any urgent emails to the business affairs desk of Derek Mead. One day later, on May 12th, 2020, Laz receives this email. Hello, Laz. Would you please send the contract on for our review? Thank you, Erica. To which he replies, Hey, Erica. Attached is a PDF copy of the contract I signed with Vice on June 3rd of 2016. Hard copies were sent at the time to Vice's general counsel, as well as to Grubman, Shire, and Mazellus, so it should be in their records. Upon signing, I was paid $10,000 for the 36-month option period. As per Section 2A, over the course of the next year and a half, I was interviewed several times by Eddie Moretti at Vice's address in Venice as part of the project's development. In February of 2018, I was introduced to Natalie Ferre and Ellie Mallon and told they would be my point of contact moving forward as the film developed. I heard nothing else until I was served with the extension notice on May 30th of 2019, informing me the option was being extended to an additional 36 months as per Section 2B. Section 2B clearly states I was to be paid $10,000 within 15 business days, just as I was paid the same amount in 2016 for the initial 36 month. Yet, to date, I have not been paid. After nearly a year, this has become a very serious matter which should be resolved as soon as possible. Laz Rojas there are no records if Laz received any response to these emails. On May 19th, 
Laz sends three more breach of contract emails to Erica Allen, Samantha Bloom, and Eddie Moretti. They're all met with no response. On May 20th, Laz receives an email from Stu Goldstein, vice lawyer. Dear Mr. Rojas, I am in receipt of the May 13th, 2020 email you had sent to Erica Allen regarding an alleged breach of life story rights. Agreement dated June 3rd of 2016, the agreement. Please note that the agreement was fully assigned to unbranded pictures in 2018, and thus, Vice no longer has any obligation whatsoever regarding the agreement. I hope you and yours are safe and well during this difficult time. Yours truly, Stu. At 2 p.m. that day, Laz responded, Dear Mr. Goldstein, I was never made aware of any changes in my original contract with Vice, only that the initial option period was being extended for an additional 36-month period pursuant to Section 2B of that agreement. Section 2B clearly states that such extension requires payment to me in the amount of $10,000 within 15 business days. Since payment has not been made to date, there has been a clear and not alleged material breach of the agreement, regardless of who holds said agreement at the present. Insofar as the terms set forth by Section 2B have not yet been met, if Vice is not obligated to abide by the terms of the agreement and make the payment as indicated by Section 2B, then who is? Unbranded pictures? My life story rights are being held by someone for the past year without payment and that someone must pay for them. I would think that assigning my contract to another entity in 2018 should have required my being informed of such, even if only as a simple courtesy, to let me know who I'd be dealing with regarding the project from that point on. I believe even banks inform you that when your mortgage is transferred to another institution, yet I received nary a word about this. In fact, the only word I ever received after 2018 was the notice of extension in which Section 2B of the agreement was invoked. I find it more than a bit interesting that, as far as I can ascertain, Unbranded Pictures was founded in 2019, which makes it somewhat problematic for Vice or anyone else to assign them anything that previous year. This matter is not over. Lazaro Rojas, motherfucker. <laughs> I love that he put his full first name in this email. It was like, it's it's a powerful punctuation mark to this email. He signed Lazaro, all- Lazaro Rojas, motherfucker. He signed all of his emails just Laz. And in this one, it was motherfucking Lazaro. 20-ish minutes later, good old Stu replied, Hi, Mr. Rojas. As you can see in the initial string you sent to Erica Allen, it was unbranded pictures and not Vice that appears to have exercised ex its extended option. And you are correct, in that initial assignment in 2018 was technically made to Mr. Eddie Moretti's holding company at the time. Nevertheless, as Vice fully exercised his right of assignment pursuant to paragraph 12 of the agreement, it is no longer under any obligation to you. I certainly appreciate your frustration and your option extension has not been paid. That said, it is Unbranded Pictures and not Vice that maintains that obligation. I encourage you to reach out to Unbranded Pictures as they have fully assumed all obligation under the agreement. Yours truly, Stu. Which two hours later, Laz responded saying, Dear Mr. Goldstein, I did in fact reach out to three principals at Unbranded Pictures, including Mr. Moretti, at the same time that I contacted Miss Allen. Unlike Miss Allen, they have not responded. To be perfectly honest, the only reason why I contacted anyone at Vice at all is because the impression given by the extension notice is that I am still under my original 2016 contract with Vice, since the notice invokes the agreement and exercises one of its clauses. Unbranded Pictures did not provide me with a new contract to sign with them. 
They informed me that they were extending the original option another three years pursuant to Section 2B of the original contract. So the question I must ask is, how can unbranded pictures have the authority to extend my contract with Vice if they are a separate entity and Vice essentially washed its hands of the project? Why did unbranded pictures not allow my original contract to expire and issue a new contract with them, instead of extending the original contract with Vice? I must point out that Vice never informed me of this reassignment in 2018, which also begs the question why I was never told until now by either Vice or unbranded pictures. That is a very important matter that appears to have somehow slipped someone's mind, not a minor and inconsequential detail to be glossed over. In matters concerning any contract, all parties should know exactly who is involved and where obligations and responsibilities lie. Anything which serves to cloud these issues would seem to be disingenuous and bad faith. Quite simply, as one of the parties involved, it was my right to know who was bound to this contract in addition to myself. There seems to be some overlap there between Vice and Unbranded Pictures, including their physical addresses, and neither seems to be willing to accept responsibility. Perhaps an attorney will be able to sort through this legal shell game and unravel it. What is indisputable is that the option of my life story rights was extended by someone. I was notified of this extension and payment has not yet been made. What needs to be clarified and enforced is which company must make that payment. One or the other must because the extension notice makes it clear there was indeed an extension that must be paid, and allowing for this to devolve into a game of hot potato between the two companies which leaves me holding the bag is not at all satisfactory. Lazaro Rojas! Two minutes later, after hitting send, in a quintessentially a spirit d'escalier moment, Laz added, Dear Mr. Goldstein, as an addendum to my previous email, I must point out that I'm a native New Yorker and I was always able to follow the P in the shell game or the queen in the three card Monty and win every time. Lazar Rojas. So angry he forgot the O at the end of his name. Yep. Which might be my favorite email ever written. Anytime someone invokes, I'm from New York, pal, it's just my favorite. However, Stu Goldstein one-upped him and said, Ah, Mr. Rojas, we have that in common. You have my word as a fellow New Yorker, that I am doing my best on this end to sort through the issue and to ensure that unbranded pictures reaches out to you ASAP. Also, I'm from the area of New York where we didn't actually get that accent and I just sound mostly have a generic voice. I understand your frustration. I joined Vice in 2019, so I'll confess that I simply don't know yet when, how, or if someone attempted to notify you of the assignment when it occurred in 2018. I'm looking into that. While it's not a technical contractual requirement to notify you of the assignment, I absolutely agree it's a courtesy that should typically be extended, of course. Also, when a contract is assigned, it is in fact common practice for that contract to remain in place as is. It's simply that one party, here unbranded, is being subbed out for another, so it's rare for a new contract to be negotiated or presented. All that said, let me make some inquiries. You have my word that someone from Vice, likely me, or unbranded will get back to you by month's end. I appreciate your continued patience as I attempt to piece together what may have happened. Yours truly, Stu, from the Grand and Clinton in the Lower East Side. Just fucking, just, just New York in it up. Oh shit. He's from New York too. He's from New York too. A flurry of emails are sent back and forth between Laz, Goldstein, and the various reps at Unbranded ultimately culminating in Eddie Moretti asking to talk on the phone on May 22nd at 9.33 p.m. Laz responds on May 26th at 8.32 a.m. saying, 
Call any day, any time. I'm always here. It's interesting you read of that because that to me wasn't as angry. That to me is kind of like I'm trying to be a good guy and be like, call me anytime. I'm here. I'm always here. Nah. You know? A motherfucking Lazaro Rojas motherfucker. Call me anytime, any day. Because I'm homeless and live with my mother in a car. I literally have nothing going on. Eddie Moretti never calls. And Laz sends an irate email stating, In response to your demand that I send you the extension notice, I am forwarding to you the email I sent on May 11th this year, which not only includes the breach of contract demand letter I served you with, but also the original email I was sent on May 30th last year with the extension notice. The email was sent to me by Samantha Broom and was carbon copied to you and two others at Unbranded. I have forwarded this extension notice to you three times over the past several months, so you cannot deny its existence. I am also attaching yet another copy of it and will forward the original email yet again, Laz Rojas. And here's where we get the big payoff, the grand conclusion that we've been waiting for. Does Laz get the money? Are he and his mother pushed out onto the street? is unbranded an evil organization attempting to take advantage of Laz and his ailing mother. Eddie Moretti sums it up all in a simple and concise email, dated June 24th at 7.16pm. Coincidentally, the day that the Andrew WK episode of Deep Cuts dropped. (laughs) Or is it a coincidence? It's an unexecuted extension notice. That means I did not exercise the option. You have no case, and you've alienated and upset the only producer that ever believed in you. E. I wish I had an air horn, or like it, or like an, or like an Inception boin. You know, like all of this, all of this builds up to basically just no one told Laz the basic facts of like it doesn't count as extended unless you receive payment. That's the. That's the actual contractual thing. So it's not in breach because it's just not in breach because we didn't actually extend it. Like saying in an email, we're going to extend it isn't legally binding. Also, if you go back to the original email and I don't necessarily fault him, I kind of fault. It's like partially his fault for like misinterpreting things or just making wild assumptions. But also (coughs) these people could have been much clearer about explaining the terms of these things to somebody who ostensibly is a layman that doesn't understand contract terminology. But if you read the original email, it does say, it, it explicitly says, um, and I'll just, I'll, I'm going to read it just so I don't. Yeah, it says it's now been transferred to yeah, Unbranded. It, it specifically says the life rights which have been assigned to Unbranded LLC are being extended. It says it in it literally says it in the first email. It's it's all there to see and be interpreted and for this entire, you know, misunderstanding to have been avoided. Um, but as much as Laz didn't understand it and didn't catch that part, it it is it's not it's not explained well enough. Like it's just kind of casually thrown out. Like, I feel like all of this could have been avoided if it was just explained a little more explicitly, not just because it's it's almost like it's woven into the extension language. 
It's like the life rights, which have been assigned by Vice to unbranded LLC, is being extended for another 36 months. And I could see how you could overlook that because it's just kind of part of the statement. And so it's not focused on or called out enough. And I feel like it could have been so much clearer if, it, if the email had started um, in regards to the life rights of Lazaro Rojas, Vice is exercising its um, contractual ability as per section whatever to assign the the these life rights, um, the licensing of these life rights from Vice to Unbranded Pictures LLC. And in addition to that, we are extending these life rights in the 36 months. And that that would have, you know, I just I, I don't understand why it wasn't made more clear, uh, you know, as if or even if just any one of the like hundred people that he emailed just was like, hey, bro. Oh, yeah. That's just whole- so you know, like, just <laughs> just just so you know, like, if you don't get the money after those two weeks, then we didn't exercise the option. Just- yeah, that's, that's a whole other story that I mean, that, that what I'm talking about is one thing. The fact that. Nobody in three years just explained this to him is insane to me. I mean, I, I've i definitely played the put this email off for a while game. I've definitely avoided responding to work emails for, you know, upwards of maybe like a couple weeks and sometimes just never responded at all to certain people if I just, you know, there was some situation where I didn't want to, or there was, you know, whatever. If they, number one, if I, if I just chose not to respond to something at all, because I just didn't want to, if they followed back up and continued emailing me, I, I would, I would eventually get back to them after maybe the second or third time. Um, certainly not over a period of years. And with all, with all the other emails, eventually you get to it. Eventually you get back to it. Um, the fact that nobody in three years could just email him and be like, oh, hey, uh, just to let you know, this actually isn't an obligation to pay you $10,000. It's only an obligation to pay you $10,000 if we decide to, ex- um, um, if we decide to execute the option to extend. Yeah. And we, and we well, have it's not, not, it's, it's not even really three years. It's this, it's the it's the interim year. It's the year of 2019 into 2020 where they said we want to exercise the continued option and then they didn't pay him. At that point, after those two weeks, then the option revert, all his life rights reverted back to him, but he didn't know that. So he thinks they still have them. So he's like badgering them for this money thinking that he's owed it, which in in fact, the contract has now run its course, is now lapsed. He has his life rights completely 100% free and clear they no longer owe him any money because that the transaction the fiduciary transaction is what engages the extension not a declaration of intent to extend um, yeah and and why nobody could have just given him that simple explanation in 3 years but it wasn't 3 years though it was a year I, well, was it though wait, 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 what, oh no yeah 20 no it was but it was 2018 to literally last last month or two months ago 
this this email exchange. Okay, yeah, you're yeah, you're you're right. It's been an extended <laughs> an extended time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in any of that any of that time, nobody could have just sent that simple blurb explaining that yeah. until much later. And they eventually do. They eventually, um, you know, the, the, there's there's a couple more emails after this 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 uh, or it's there's a couple of emails before I forget if it's before or after it's either before or after this bomb that Eddie Moretti drops where he says um, or not he but the Sarah Bloom person I think she says yeah there's there's a couple more emails after this one but I just figured this is the best place to end it because it really just it is the end of the line this is Eddie Moretti explaining to him bro why did you act this way like we might have re-optioned your life rights for double the amount of money. Who knows? But now we're definitely not going to do this because you've been super unprofessional and aggressive about this the whole time. Yeah. Partly, it's not his fault because he didn't understand the situation and nobody was telling him. And another part is just kind of like, you really needed that money that badly? Like, I know you need that. I know you need money, but isn't there a way that you can find employment or do something to get you whatever you need to get through the day? But maybe I'm being maybe I'm being unkind and maybe that's I'm not. But it's like know. but it's like everything else, though. It's the, it's this this situation with this specific ten thousand dollars is the same as his whole life. It's it's a synecdoche for his whole life. He yeah. was fixated on getting this ten thousand dollars in his mind. And, and, I, and I feel like, you know. Honestly, I mean, I don't want to sit here and psychologically di- diagnose. I am not a I'm not a healthcare professional. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not qualified to um, psychologically diagnose people. And I also think that most people are not qualified to diagnose people um, based on um, just public perception of them. Like you really need to sit with somebody and talk with them for an extended period of time before you can start diagnosing them with things. And I. You know, I think a lot of these people who are just like, based on these interviews, I think such and such celebrity is a psychopath or whatever. It's just like, that's bullshit. You you just can't say that. But um, in as far as I'm going to kind of diagnose with my limited experience uh, or not experience at all, uh, I, I feel like this, this as well as just his overarching um, life tra- trajectory might be something to do with some kind of level of OCD where it's not even necessarily that he was so enamored with the idea of becoming a filmmaker or that it was it really was this ultimate goal that he you know became fixated on but that just maybe like he got it in his head that it had to happen that way and he just he once that groove had been cut into the wood the water just couldn't jump out of it and it was just it's just trained in that groove all the way to the other end. And it in and, and there's no there's no fluidity to it at all. Um, and, you know, when you when you look at the filmmaking stuff, you can say like, oh, yeah, he was just thick. You know, he was dedicated, unrelentingly dedicated to this goal. But then you look at something like this and it's like, oh, maybe, maybe there's something else going on there where it's not necessarily dedication, but it's just that he gets obsessive about a specific expectation of what he thinks should or is going to happen. And whenever he gets fixated on like on it like that, um, 
anything else is chaos to him and he can't process it. Uh, and because like you said, instead of, instead of, you know, maybe a couple months into this process being like, you know what, I'm going to stop. I'm going to still pursue this and still keep talking to these people and trying to get something to happen here, but I'm not going to put all of my eggs in this basket and just continue to let my financial life atrophy um, with the hopes that this $10,000 is going to come through. I'm going to get a job and or I'm going to do whatever I'm gonna, whatever, whatever it is that he's going to do. But in his mind, he just could not accept that it had to be this way. The only way that he could get $10,000 is from this specific contract and this specific ex- extension and everything else is rejected psychologically. Um, and that's where that's where it becomes less about dedication and more about uh, this self-destructive obsession with not a goal, but just a specific um, a specific path that cannot be strayed from for some for some reason, some some psychological contrivance. Yeah. This Byzantine rat maze that Laz had been trapped in was nothing more than a prison of misunderstandings and perhaps purposeful omissions. The questions that linger are, was Laz unclear on the logistics of the options? Because I found myself thinking, oh, if they didn't send the payment after two weeks, then they just didn't pick up the option renewal, right? His life rights reverted back to him, right? Does an email constitute an execution of a contract? No. Monetary exchange does. Thus, so much of this pain Laz endured could have been cleared up if just one person had emailed him, or if he just showed it to a lawyer. However, that's the catch-22, isn't it? If you can barely afford to live in a motel, how are you going to afford a lawyer? The question I'm curious about is about the transfer from Vice to Unbranded. Can you do that? My understanding is that you can't transfer an option from one company to another. It's not actually a piece of intellectual property. It's a specific holding right against a piece of intellectual property. I'm not I'm not an expert on the legality of that, but it it feels not right to me that how uh flippant Stu Goldstein is about that detail. If he's like, you know, oh yeah, I mean we're not we're not actually legally obligated to do that, but I I agree that it's probably a courtesy that we should have. I I don't that doesn't seem right to me that you can that like in a partnership with somebody, whatever that is, whether it's the life rights holding of somebody or anything, that you can just transfer on the obligation in the contract to another company without informing the other party at all, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem like that could possibly be true. Well, the thing that the thing that the only thing that I could think of that would explain that is if unbranded media LLC Incorporated, whatever the fuck they're called, if they were Vice Media, they were they were a sub company of Vice at a certain point in time. Well, the, and the then Vice restructured and they uh, they allotted the option to that specific sub company, which then broke off and became its own thing. Well, the, I mean, the, only- well, the 
how that might be true in some way is um, Eddie, Eddie Moretti was the chief creative officer of Vice. And then Unbranded Pictures LLC is his own personal company. So I feel like and 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 Laz makes some vague reference to there being some overlap where at a certain point unbranded they shared the same address. Shared yeah. the same address. So it seems to me like um it seems to me like at some point Eddie Moretti was producing projects at Vice and then decided to create his own holding company to own some of the intellectual property of some of the things that he was producing at Vice. Um, and he had worked out an agreement with them of like, we're going to produce this for Vice, but I want to own the intellectual property for it. And it's going to be under my own LLC. And then at some point he decided to move away from Vice and forge unbranded as an in, as its own um, autonomous entity. There's a lot of information about this story that I don't know. But what I do know is I'm a guy who spends my time devouring Laz Rojas's videos on the internet. My heart breaks for him and his mother. I wish that this experience, which at the time undoubtedly seemed like their wildest dreams coming true, had turned out better for him. I hope that it hasn't soured him deeply. The Laz Rojas one, I think, has the fewest views of all four episodes of our show because the other three are funny. You know, it's like, oh, you know, here's... Oh, the Miami Connection guy, like, you know, he's successful. He's got a family. And I think people are just, like, more comfortable just kind of laughing along with that guy or, like, Birdemic or, you know, it's like you can, these are things you can laugh at. But Laz Rojas, especially in the context of his actual life now, it's not so fun to laugh at that, you know? I don't think that is one. And so that I think that was one that didn't get, like, shared around by people that were like, oh, it's so bad, it's good. You know, like that whole bullshit yeah. approach. I mean, that, that goes back all the way to the thing we were talking about in the very beginning of the, uh, some, some of the classicism of, of out, outsider art um, of, of observance, where a lot of it is, there's like a group of people who truly appreciate it for, uh, you know, what it is, you know, the, the, the honest kind of raw um, transference of somebody's inner world out into a tangible reality, you know, without any of the traditional training or skills that a professional in whatever their field is. Um, and then there is like, arguably, there's a small group of people that appreciate it in that way. And then the way that that stuff gets sort of projected out and become more popular is by a different set of people who enjoy it because it's like, oh, this is so bad. It's good. This is like, so uh, let's watch this ironically. And we talked about that a lot in the Shags episode, um, but it, it goes back to that because, um, you know, it's funny because your show, uh, as we as we kind of mentioned before, and the, sort of the respectful way that you, um, the, number one, the respectful way that you present and depict the people, but also the way that, like, particularly in the in the Laz Rojas episode, the way you kind of let him speak for himself and it didn't it felt like he was kind of presenting his story as opposed to like let's look into a into a cage at this animal or whatever um and it's there's there's a show i don't know if you ever saw this there i've i've never actually watched the show but i've just seen a tons of clips of it on the internet but there was a show in like the 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 late 
like in the 2010s or maybe it was earlier than that. I forget exactly, but it was hosted by Fred Willard and it was it was called uh, Totally Obsessed. And it was about like obsessed fans of things um, like this woman. I forget her name. She's actually kind of like a minor Internet celebrity now, but uh, she's like the biggest Ninja Turtle super fan in the world. And like she lives her life as a Ninja Turtle. And she was like painted green and shit like she she got she got like a, she got a Ninja Turtles costume, which it, it looks like it's like. It's not from any of the movies. I think it seems like it's from one of those like shitty, like straight to VHS, like videos that they made in the in the mid '90s with the Ninja Turtles. Like she somehow got a hold of this, and she like wears it, and she like only eats pizza with like weird stuff on it. She'll be she'll like eat pizza with marshmallows and sardines on it and stuff. Is um, she single? Uh, I maybe maybe <laughs> I, she was at the time. Well, you, you'd have to check. Um, but, uh, you know, and every episode would be, would be about a person like that. But right. the whole point of the show, it was a VH1 show. And the whole point of the show was just to make fun of the people. Like, that was the tone of it. It was not like, this is fascinating. Or like, let's look at this interesting person's life. It was like, look at this fucking freak. Um, and your show is like the opposite of that. It, it, it's the direct other end of the spectrum of, of the way that that is. Um, but I feel like to, to your point, the unfortunate thing is that's probably is why that episode didn't do as well is because, yeah, yeah people, I think a majority of people that are into outsider art want to enjoy it in that way, ironically. Um, so, you know, whenever, whenever it gets real and whenever it gets to actually, uh, you know, get dig into maybe some of the traumas that they've experienced, the reasons why they are the way that they are. That's just not as, I guess, appealing at, at, a, at a larger scale as mainstream as outsider art can be. Yeah, it was hard because in every episode, there were challenges that were presented where somebody at Vice would say like, oh, you have footage of this. And I'm like, yeah, but it makes the person look like a buffoon or like a friend of this character said something racist and they're like, put that in. And I'm like, well, no, that's not the story we're telling. And also it's going to create a negative light on this person. And it's not even their fault that this other thing happened. You know what I mean? Like there were all these opportunities to cheapen the show that were encouraged, but we ultimately were able to evade that. No, I mean, that's yeah, but, but like the only purpose for almost anything I've tried to do for a living or for fun is to celebrate, you know, unique ideas and, you know, the most beautiful aspects of the flawed humanity. And the fact that we've spent our entire history as a species just, you know, deifying beauty and perfection is so boring and pointless to me. It's ridiculous. It's also just folded it's folded over onto itself so many times that even for whatever for whatever value that like deifying beauty and perfection and uh you know the classical idea of of um you know these conventional approaches to art you know the the Hollywood system and movie stars you know whatever value that that had and still has it's just gotten pushed and pushed further into this place of 
inauthenticity. And we, we've talked about that a lot uh, on several episodes of the show. We talked about it, I, th- I think, on the Shags episode. We talked about it on the Andrew WK episode and I think the Britney Spears episode. Um, the 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 death of authenticity that we've talked about. And I think that's what even even further pushes outsider art to the forefront of of um, a lot of people's interests and what is so enticing about it is that um, as you know in an ever in an ever um, evolving world towards this level of like not knowing when people mean what they're saying anymore these people are an oasis of honesty and yeah. and you you always know that you can take them at face value you always know that what they're saying is an authentic version of themselves and their inner world and to a lot of people i think a lot of people that's not appealing like for the reason we were talking about with how your that episode in particular didn't get as many views for a lot of people they want that facade world that to compartmentalize and and sort of shut out those those realities of the world that they just don't want to confront but to another group of people that's specifically enticing of feeling that level of authenticity and feeling like you know i don't this might be like and in and in Laz Rojas's case this is not even this is not even the case because what he made was very kind of technically impressive in a lot of ways but for all these outsider artists like i don't care if this is like poorly made or if they didn't know what they were doing because this is like a this is just them this is pure raw honesty this is just what this is everything this is this is just their the inside of their minds writ um physical and i think that that's just super appealing to a lot of people um and it becomes even more appealing which is kind of uh we talked about in the in the shags episode the fact the idea that the shags whenever they were making music in the late 60s nobody gave a fuck about them or at best they just thought they were this horrible joke and then in the 80s they found this undercurrent that kind of dragged them on not to popularity or to the stardom that they that the dad wanted for them but this fan base of people who are really fascinated by um the level of, of office authenticity that they presented in their music and i think maybe the some of the reason for that i mean part of it is just that like there are some somewhat well-known people who started talking about them but i think another part of it was that in the 80s the 80s was the decade of, of excess that was like that was the beginning of this like polished um uh crafting of of reality that you know celebrities became these pr backed entities as opposed to um you know more authentic feeling artists of the 60s and 70s so in within the context of that decade people were craving that i think some people were craving that and i think we're kind of in another period of that right now yeah and it happens with music it happens with movies it happens you know it's just like you know, things become so crafted and so template-based that suddenly what appeals to everyone appeals to no one. And then there's this reset, which is what happened, you know, in like the late 60s with Bonnie and Clyde and all this stuff, you know, like where movies were suddenly 
jarred. And, that, and that's, and it's great that that happens, but it just always seems to careen back to ultra manufactured, you know, and inevitably it goes back to that, like to the ideal. Yeah. So, and I think that's, I think that's the reason why what you were talking about earlier, that all those people stuck around and wanted to talk to Laz and spent hours after the screening as opposed yeah. to like if it was Tom Cruise, like certainly there'd be all these people there, but they would just want to get a picture with him and just stand near him for a couple minutes and then they would go. Right. So it, it might be like a higher volume of people, but a quicker turnaround of people just kind of walking up and then walking away. And the reason for that is because ultimately at the end of the day, like, yeah, like Tom Cruise has made a ton of good movies and, you know, you might be a huge fan of him as an actor or a movie star. And, you know, maybe he's an interesting per person or something but at the end of the day like who gives a fuck like what 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 experiences tom cruise as a celebrity entity out in public what what experience is he going to give you he's just going to be like thanks like he's just going to say thanks yeah man yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah like that's that's not that's not a that's that's not an experience that anybody is craving or looking for uh you, yeah, you might it's not going to be like a shared experience yeah. a shared connection mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was the power of that of that last screening because of him. That was that was what made that memorable and important. So where does this story end? What will Laz do next? Well, hopefully he'll make more movies. He'll create more idiosyncratic works that have their own internal logic to them. That's completely unlike anything else ever created in the history of man. Very few artists can make that statement. That being said, Hopefully there's less blackface in whatever Laz ends up doing next. Yeah, I mean, I just, I really think that the, there, there's something, there's something um, very notable about the relationship between perfectionism and extreme refusal to um, compromise your vision or your platonic ideal of what you want something to be. And then the intersection of that and like fear of failing and how in some ways they can be codependent. And, and then that, that creates this gray area of like, in any given situation, is this genuine perfectionism? Is this genuine unrelenting dedication to a singular vision? Or is this somebody that is deeply scared of people validating every fear that they have about their own shortcomings and just using this as a, as a never ending excuse to never commit to doing anything but under the guise of it being a choice. Um, and, I, and I think that that is, once again, Laz Rojas is the illogical extreme of that because we, we talked about this a little bit with Zach, but it's fascinating that he seems to have that level of fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of people not liking what he does. And usually people that externalizes itself in people talking about something a lot and never actually doing it and just leaving it as an idea in their head. Whereas Laz didn't do that. He actually laboriously creates the work, but then just hides it away in a storage facility or comes up with endless excuses and rationalizations for why it can't happen or can't go out there and be shown. And I think the reason for that is because I think he is deeply sensitive about people rejecting his work. And I think that a lot of his failures and his continued 
struggle is a to some degree i don't know what percentage of it is i'm not saying it's all this but i think to some degree it is a self-manufactured narrative to insulate himself from having to commit to showing his work to people and having to have it stand on its own and be judged by its merit yeah i think that there is i think there's a large component of that i think there's a there's a large component of the fact that for whatever reason, Laz Rojas's primal innocence creates a, a thin membrane between himself and the rest of existence. And whether he still is that way now, I don't know. But at a certain point in time, he was he appeared to have a very complex relationship with every aspect of social interactions uh, in that that either obsessive compulsive attribute that you're mentioning before or fear of intimacy or I don't I don't I don't know where it comes from but I, I do know that there, he was a person in New York City with a loving family and for whatever reason he couldn't see the world the way it actually is and that worldview started making a feedback loop where he started literally building a fake reality around him populated exclusively with himself both metaphorically and literally and that is a very fascinating tragic compelling and decidedly clumpian i'm dave baker this has been deep cuts <laughs> you fucker <laughs> And I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. I guess. I don't know. I should have just said I'm Dave Baker. <laughs> uh, you can find me online at heydavebaker.com or you can find comics like my uh, magnum opus that is, I guess, something akin to my version of an outsider comic, the three-volume uh, Action Hospital series, and then um, also Fuck Off Squad and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me dressed as a woman seducing myself slowly and sensually and uh, you can also find me at dapricerights.com where you can uh, buy my comic deadbolt ai private eye Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.